After my marriage in 1884, I believed that the beckoning spirits of Africa would fade away and no longer haunt me. But softly as the falling dew, they kept returning. In the end, I allowed myself to share with my wife the music they poured into my ears by night and often by day. Their magic won my wife completely until in January 1893, together we set out to make our dreams come true. One of the voices whispering into Burnham's eager ear of Africa was H. Ryder Haggard, who published his classic novel, King Solomon's Mines, which told of a treasure hunting expedition north out of South Africa in 1885. It's not hard at all to imagine the romantic Frederick Russell Burnham casting himself in the role of Alan Quartermain, the veteran hunter and frontiersman who's the hero of that yarn. Haggard's tale of lost cities and ancient treasures in a wilderness to the north of South Africa drew heavily on growing Western interest in the land lying north of the Limpopo River, land that hunters the likes of Frederick Courtney Salou and Johannes Ludovicus Lee had explored in their wanderings, and we've talked about them in, in previous podcasts. That's the land that is today called Zimbabwe, after the great ancient abandoned stone city of Great Zimbabwe. And for a treasure hunter like Fred, the possibility of real mineral wealth wrapped up in, in such romantic and mystical trappings of adventure had to have been just an absolutely irresistible pull. The Burns were also feeling pushed. The American frontier was officially closed as of 1890, and that meant something to, to Fred. He saw this rough egalitarianism and, and open opportunity of the frontier shutting down in the face of these vast in inequities of Gilded Age industrial capitalism where plutocrats and powerful corporations were increasingly dominating civic and economic life in the United States. Fred was so concerned with this that he became enamored of a popular American brand of utopian socialism based on the writings of Edward Bellamy. And this was a very very American form of socialism and didn't even really want to call itself socialism and, and wrapped itself in the flag and and was opposed to the atheism that uh, European socialists tended toward and uh, and Bellamy called it nationalism, but it definitely was a, a brand of, of socialism. And uh, Burnham hoped to find a new frontier that could develop along the lines of Bellamy's vision, where, as he put it, no man could deny another man his bread. And all that's pretty ironic because pioneering the land north of the Limpopo River was the project of one of the greatest plutocrats of the age, Cecil John Rhodes. Nowadays, even well-educated folks in America don't know who Cecil Rhodes was. In the late 19th century, he was one of the richest men in the world, and his imperial dreams moved armies and shook stock markets. He conquered the country that was named after him, Rhodesia, and established Rhodes Scholarships at uh, Oxford. And probably the Rhodes Scholarship is, is the only 
thing that uh, most Americans even remotely know about Cecil Rhodes. In the past few years, there's been a pretty concerted effort to cancel Rhodes from history, which is is foolish. Um, he was an unlovely figure in a lot of respects, but he was an extraordinary figure and a very important one in the late 19th and very early 20th century. And he's fascinating. He came to the diamond fields in South Africa as a teenager and built one of the great fortunes in history by consolidating diamond claims at the big hole in Kimberley um, in the very north of the, the Cape Colony and creating a monopoly that lasted for over a century. And he would make another fortune on the gold fields of the Witwatersrand of South Africa. He was plagued from the time that he was a young man uh, by a failing heart. Um, not quite clear what the specifics of his health problems were, but he had uh, clearly had upper respiratory and uh, and cardio problems from very early on, and so he was hearing a TikTok of doom from an early age, and he pressed his ambitions with a lot of speed and energy because he figured his time was limited, and also pressed them with an utter lack of scruples. He would basically do anything to achieve his ends and figured that the ends justified the means. And the ends were important because Rhodes was not like other robber barons of his day where conspicuous consumption and accruing great riches was an end of itself. Rhodes lived rather simply for a man of his extraordinary wealth, and he wasn't really motivated by mere wealth or, or personal power. He had a dream, and his dream was a kind of mystical imperium of the Anglo-Saxon race, and one that would make Africa a white man's province for the benevolent rule of the Anglo-Saxon race, which he considered the apogee of human civilization. He even fantasized about a reunion of England and the United States as part of this imperial dream. And like all imperial dreamers, his noble ends, again, justified any means, which included trickery, financial chicanery, and, if necessary, force. For the purposes of our story... What's important is that in 1888, he secured a mineral concession from King Lobengula of the Amadebele, then more commonly called the Matabele, uh, to prospect in Mashona land, which were lands Lobengula claimed rule over, which lay to the e north and the east, mostly east of his kingdom of Matabele land. And true to form, Rhodes pushed way beyond the letter of this concession, sending British South Africa Company's Pioneer Column, piloted by Frederick Courtney Salou, which we described in a previous podcast, to occupy Mashona land. And this was kind of a classic British form of imperialism by, uh, by private enterprise, by joint stock company. Lobengula 
recalled what happened to the Zulu kingdom in Natal in 1879, um, which was was crushed after initial successes against the the British army. Um, the Zulus were crushed and and their kingdom broken up. And so Lobengula was reluctant to fight against the pioneer column, knowing that if these white interlopers were harmed, that, that the British would likely bring a great amount of force against him. And so he restrained his more militant subjects from just rubbing the pioneer column out, and which they could have easily done. But, uh, failing to do so or refraining from doing so allowed these white men to gain a foothold in the country. And historians Mary and John Bradford describe this situation nicely. King Lobengula's mining concessions to the chartered company in Mashona land threatened his own power. Matabele Military Society survived on raiding Mashona and other tribes to capture women for marriage, young boys to raise as warriors for the king's regiments, known as impis, and cattle for wealth. The king did not expect changes simply because whites hired Mashona laborers to work in their mines and on their farms. The Mashona, however, appealed to the British for protection. An uneasy truce existed for three years as the king struggled to restrain young warriors who wanted to drive out the whites. Confident that Lobengula would eventually force the issue, officials of the British South Africa Company intended ultimately to extend their power over Matabele land. Meanwhile, Dr. Leander Starr Jameson, the company's chief administrator, played down difficulties with the king to stockholders and potential settlers. Now, some people dispute whether or not Jameson and the British South Africa Company actually um, intended all along to take Matabele land. Um, Chris Ash, who has written an excellent book on the, the Matabele Wars, um, takes great issue with that. But the consensus is that, that Rhodes and consequently Jameson had their eye on Matabele land from the very beginning. That didn't necessarily mean that they wanted a war. Um, again, this, you know, this is a private enterprise, and wars are expensive, and uh, and certainly, uh, I think it's fair to say that neither Rhodes nor nor Jameson were really looking for a fight in 1893. But war came. The Bradfords again. A July 1893 incident provoked war. Lobengula sent 2,500 warriors to raid Fort Victoria to punish the Mashona for stealing. Warriors obeyed orders that no whites be harmed, but killed the despised Mashona in front of their horrified employers. Settlers threatened to leave the country unless the BSA furnished protection. Jameson realized the colony could not stand disruptions of its black labor force. Confronting Matabili and Dunas, which are their generals. Outside the brick walls of Fort Victoria on July 17th, he ordered them to retire immediately or face retaliation. Although one MP retreated, a mounted patrol caught another raiding a nearby Mashona Kral and opened fire, killing several Matabili. Convinced that war was inevitable, Jameson used the native trader Johann Kohlenbrander, a company agent, to spread propaganda against the Matabili among the white settlers. 
Colin Brander portrayed the Matabilia's bloodthirsty savage as bent on revenge. Nearing Victoria, the Burnhams heard these tales possibly from Colin Brander himself. Fred, his wife Blanche, and their young son Roderick had left Durban, Natal in April, headed for the British South Africa Company outpost at Fort Salisbury in Mashonaland. And uh, as the Bradfords note, historians of the American Overland Trail will find similarities between the Burnham's African trek and the crossing of the American plains in the 1840s and 1850s. Fred mended harness, cared for the donkeys, and hunted to supplement their diet. Blanche cooked meals over a reflector and in a Dutch oven, washed clothes in streams, and shared her husband's longing for American pie and baked beans. Roderick caught the donkeys, gathered ox chips for campfires on the timberless veld, and under his mother's instruction learned his letters from the California primary reader. At first the Burnhams traveled alone. North of Johannesburg, they joined a wagon train for the dangerous last leg through lion country. In the train they met two Americans, cowboys turned prospectors, Pearl Pete Ingram and Bob Bain. Both men would become part of the Burnham Circle in the north. And both of those men would also become scouts with Burnham in the coming Matabele War. The Burnhams only made it as far as Fort Victoria as this war scare swept through the, the colony. A woman at Fort Victoria left a vivid account of the arrival of this American family. We had been in Victoria only two days when I was amazed at a peculiar equipage that came ambling into town, drawn by mules. When the dust subsided, somebody told me that it was a real American buckboard and that the driver was Frederick Burnham, the famous American Indian scout. It seemed incredible that Major Burnham, his wife, and his little seven-year-old could have made the trip across the veld through forest and over flooded rivers in so flimsy appearing a conveyance. But there they were. They were a remarkable trio, the first American family I had known. Major Burnham, with his strong, handsome, tanned face, his alert gaze, and his quick, noiseless movements, reminded me of a leopard. His wife was young and very attractive, the most astonishing, astonishingly practical person I had ever met. I could scarcely believe my eyes when, in the midst of all the excitement and confusion, she insisted that Frederick unpack her sewing machine because she needed a new dress, and the boy simply had to have some shirts. He had grown so fast that his arms were positively sticking out of his old ones. Thinking of the Kimberly women and those who I had known in Joburg, I suspected at first that she was posing, but her husband took her demand seriously enough to delay his own urgent business, and in a few minutes she was serenely whirring away on lengths of gingham and denim, quite oblivious of the circle of black faces pressing close to witness the new magic. Given his outlook and his temperament, you might think that Fred would be fired up and eager to get into some violent action, which seemed increasingly inevitable as the Southern African winter rolled on. But he wasn't an aggressive young bachelor anymore with nothing to lose. He had a wife and a young son, eight or nine years old, to think about. The Burnhams had come to Africa to seek their fortune not to go to war, and initially Fred determined that he was going to stay out of the fray. But the fates had other plans. 
The economic storm that had been brewing as the Burnhams left North America brewed up into a hurricane, the worst crisis in America prior to the Great Depression. It was in in itself a depression. And this tempest just pummeled the Burnhams and wiped out their savings. Suddenly, the mercenary inducements of freebooting in Matabili land became very enticing indeed. And Jameson and Rhodes offered land and mineral claims to those who would volunteer to serve the chartered company in the field. Burnham wrote to his uncle, Fearing things have gone wrong and my luck has changed, I shall take military service with a chartered company and go into the war. I will go in an independent troop as a scout and get as pay arms and mount, rations when possible, half of the spoils and 6,000 acres of land, 15 mineral claims and 5 alluvial. It will be a hard and desperate service, but full of adventure and a chance to see unknown lands, for which in spite of the long trek I still love to see more. In fact, I am infatuated with Africa. It is grand in size and life, is full of possibilities, and not carried on in such a hammer-and-tongs way as in California. There will be five Americans, hardy, restless, nervy men they are, who will be in the scouts. There will be only twenty scouts and a total of a thousand men. We expect to begin the campaign in twenty days. Probably it will be fifty, though, before we really cross the border of King Lobengula's country and have our first fight with his ebony soldiers. The tactics of Lobengula are defensive until the rainy season, so he must beard the lion in dry weather on horseback and not flounder through swamps surrounded by blacks in wet season. Matabililand is one of the finest countries in Africa. Corn, wheat, rice, and all semi-tropic products grow well. In fact, this country is all one could ask. And I should note, here it seems that he's talking about Mashonaland. Timber. Beautiful streams flowing over rocky beds, fine climate tall appearances, undulating and wooded with some abrupt mountains and picturesque granite buttes, in fact lovely to the eye, soil extremely fertile. Just the country, I thought, as I came through Providential Pass, to stay in and help build a commonwealth where the cry of work or bread should not be heard. I think I could get a good start in this country by next year but at present the hazard of a scout into Matabele land seems most alluring. Trading with the natives is very profitable, and I can make an easy living with a good rifle. By the by, find out if a finely dressed leopard or lion skin would sell in Pasadena, and would it need to be mounted. I will send you one and go halves on proceeds. That's just such a, a classic frontiersman's outlook, thinking about the land and its prospects, even as he's preparing to go into war or actually on campaign. It reminds me of, of hunters in Kentucky or some of the Continental Army soldiers that moved through Seneca country in 1779 during the Sullivan campaign in the American Revolution. Their eye is always on the fertility of the soil and the lay of the land and, and what the land could be turned into. And that's what Burnham was thinking right from the very beginning. On the eve of launching with the campaign into Matabele land, Fred wrote to his mother, Rebecca. And the scout had a pretty clear picture of the various ways in which the conquest, and he had no doubt that it would be a conquest, 
of Matabili land would be viewed. And uh, he was right up to the, to the present day. To part of the world, we will be apostles of civilization. To some, freebooters and land pirates. To the Matabelis, murderers and invaders. To the Mishonas, what a lion is to a jackal, the giver of awful and stray bones, hence welcomed, not loved. To the historians in later years, we will but prove the continuity of evolution in the year 93-94. To the young and adventure hunting, and secretly that strain runs far into the life of many more men than one would at first believe, we will be considered lucky in falling upon stirring times. Some romances can take our dreary marches strewn with the bones of our dead oxen and horses and dotted by the graves of those of us who fell, our desperate fights in dead of night, our lovely camps beside swift rivers and among blue mountains, the plains dotted with noble game, the earth a paradise, the solitary scout cut off from his command and selling his life dear as possible, the lovely girl in the garrison who is in love with the captain, the grand country conquered by a handful of men that countless thousands may settle in peace and quiet, the buildings of an empire on our smoldering bones. All of these things flash before me as I write this, my last letter to you, before I am off to the war. But let the world class me as they choose, murderer, apostle, pirate, invader, or whatnot. To you, I am always Fred. In October, the forces of the British South Africa Company invaded Matabili land in three columns. Major Patrick Forbes, who was a former army officer, held the overall command and uh, led the Salisbury contingent. And Burnham rode with the Victoria Column, which was led by Major Alan Wilson, the big strapping guy with a, with a Zapata mustache, a classic Victorian hero. And uh, because of his experience in... Arizona during the Apache Wars, Burnham was made the expedition's main scout. The two columns uh, joined up under uh, Forbes' overall command at Iron Mine Hill, and there was a third column coming up from the south that was led by Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton Gould Adams. So Burnham's scouting work was really arduous. He was covering a lot of very rough terrain with no maps to speak of and very little prior knowledge of the topography. And I would have to say that Burnham and his fellow scouts turned in really first-class work that prevented the Matabili Impis, that's their regiments, from ambushing the columns while they were on the march. There were lots of skirmishes with, uh, with Matabili patrols, um, which operated on foot, trying to catch these white scouts who, being on horseback and armed with rifles, could uh, keep them at range and, uh, and fire and skitter away. And uh, in common with this kind of frontier partisan warfare, Burnham took trophies. Assegais, which are the short stabbing spear that uh, the Matabili continued to rely upon um, that was developed by their, their Zulu cousins. Tall shields, also a, uh, a Zulu armament, and, uh, and Burnham also 
tried to send his wife a pair of Matabili ears. So he didn't take scalps, but uh, in, in common with many frontiersmen, he, he wasn't shy about, uh, about taking a bodily trophy. With these white men penetrating deep into the heartland of his kingdom and with his military leadership in a state of complete fury, uh, King Lobengula, I mean, even though he was an, uh, supposedly an absolute ruler, he had very little choice but to turn his regiments loose. Um, at some point, uh, their fury would have overtaken him and he would have been overthrown had he not taken action. So he did turn them loose, but it, it ended in a catastrophic disaster for the Matabele. Um, the Matabele did have firearms. They had uh, had firearms for about 30 years at this point, and uh, many of them were armed with good, current, single-shot Martini Henry rifles, which were uh, pretty much the same armament that the, the Pioneer Column carried into Rhodesia with them. But the Matabili were not skilled with firearms, and firepower had not been adapted into their tactical doctrine, which remained the same as the, the Zulu, uh, which had made them dominant 60 years ago, but was outmoded in the face of a heavily armed modern force. The Matabili's attitude towards guns... Um, was uh, sort of almost superstitious, and they they believed that raising the sights on a firearm made it uh, hit more powerfully, and uh, so they often shot over the heads of their foes. And again, their their tactical doctrine was still the Zulu formation. They fought primarily with the the stabbing spear, the assegai and a club called a Nobkari, which uh, was just a, a, a stick with a, a hard knob at the end of it that they used for, for skull crushing. Um, and they deployed this behind a tall cowhide shield that was uh, good for turning a blade or blocking a blow from another Nobkari, but couldn't turn a bullet, couldn't stop a, a bullet from a modern firearm. They used the Zulu formation of a bull's head with two horns that moved to flank an enemy while the tightly packed head or the center pressed forward to crush them. And their discipline and their martial prowess had made them feared across southern Africa. Um, they had, when the... Uh, Founder of the Matabele Nation, Mzilikazi, had broken off from the Zulu back in the 1830s. They they went on a rampage across southern Africa, and they were were quite feared. But uh, for a couple decades after they had moved north, after being defeated by the Boers in uh, a major battle, they had pretty much been confined to raiding their subject people like the Mashona. And they did a lot more killing than they did serious fighting. They had no way of knowing how seriously outmoded their way of fighting had become. So 
this would have significant consequences in the 1893 war. The Matabili Impies just hurled themselves at Forbes' men in two pitched battles, and Forbes' column was forded up with the expedition's wagons drawn up into defensive positions called, after the Boer term, a logger. And uh, so the, the white column had a, a very strong defensive position, and the, uh, the Matabele simply charged into him. But uh, they might have been able to actually overwhelm these chartered company loggers by just sheer numbers, except for one element that was of critical importance. The company force was armed with a pair of new Maxim guns, which was the first true modern machine gun. And this was, in fact, the first combat deployment of the Maxim gun. And these guns just mowed down the Matabele warriors in windrows, a preview of the industrial-scale slaughter that uh, occurred on the Western Front in World War I, where the machine gun just dominated the battlefield. And hundreds of Matabili were slaughtered, 600 or so, in just a, a hailstorm of bullets over a few minutes, while the company forces took light casualties amongst their Mashona auxiliaries, and only one trooper wounded. Um, the Frenchman Hilary Belloc would write uh, a couplet pretty sardonically about the implications of, of modern battlefield technology uh, for European colonialism. And it famously goes, Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. So the battles of the Shingani Forest and the Mbembezi River broke the military power of the Matabili. But the war was not over, not until the company had secured Lobengula's capital of Bulawayo, which was known as the Place of Slaughter, which gives you an idea of the, the nature of Lobengula's reign. And they also wanted to capture the king, and Lobengula had gone on the run. So Burnham and two other writers, Henry Posselt and, uh, and Pete Ingram, who uh, they'd ridden north from Johannesburg with, were the first to enter Bulawayo after Lobengula or his followers blew up his store of ivory and gunpowder and, and fled. Now, Lobengula was, was quite brutal to his own people. And numerous members of his household actually committed suicide. It was a, a, a very dark and, uh, and frightening court that Lobengula held. But uh, he was generally uh, pretty well disposed to white people. You may remember that uh, he had granted the likes of Frederick Courtney Salou the, the right to hunt in his country. Um, and uh, evidence of, of Lobengula's attitude towards white people was found with a pair of English traders who were just sitting in the smoking ruins of Bulawayo 
left unharmed on orders of the king. And Burnham made a, a particular note of this, saying, Old Lobangula is, for a savage, not so bad as he might be. The company administrator, Leander Starr Jameson, dispatched Major Forbes to run the fugitive king down, and Forbes requested Burnham as his lead scout. So all of Burnham's self-activated training and conditioning came to fruition in his scouting work in the Matabele War in 1893. He was in the saddle constantly on horses that were worn out from hard work and short feed and rough terrain that beat up their hooves. Once when his scouts' horses threw their shoes, Burnham improvised boots for them out of a Matabele cowhide shield that he boiled down to make it pliable. So this was, it was rough work and basically without a break and a real tribute to the scout's focus and determination and his constitution. Regardless of whether you see Burnham as an apostle of civilization or a murdering land pirate, you have to respect his capabilities as an operator and the Matabele certainly did. With Forbes' force hot on his trail, Loeb and Gula made a play for peace that tragically failed thanks to an accident of war and the greed of, of just two men. The Matabele king sent out an emissary with an offer of peace and a bag of gold sovereigns as a token of good faith. And the emissary missed Forbes' column in the dark, he was aiming for the front of the column and ran into the to the back of the column and and two stragglers named William Daniel and James Wilson and the emissary gave them the king's message and the bag of gold and and turned back into the bush well you can see what's coming here the two stragglers didn't have it in them to turn the gold in or relay Lobengula's message to their commander they just kept the bag of gold and their mouths shut, and no one knew about Lobangula's peace offering it until it was too late and more blood had been spilled in Matabele land. Forbes was weary of this chase, and they were wearing out their horses. I mean, this is, this is rough campaigning. Um, even though they hadn't taken many casualties, they were exhausted and, and strained by the rigors of the campaign. So um, convinced that Loeb and Gula couldn't be too far ahead, Major Forbes dispatched Major Wilson with a small flying column with a mission to capture or kill the king. And Forbes ordered that if the mission couldn't be accomplished by dark, Wilson was to return to the main column. Wilson had to have Burnham, of course, but the scout's horse was worn out. So Forbes actually gave the American his personal mount, which was the best and the fittest in the column. And this 19-man force rode out. The Shangani patrol, as it became known, was doomed. And their grim but heroic fate would become 
a foundational myth for Rhodesia, much like the Alamo is for Texas. Students of frontier partisan warfare will hear echoes of the Fetterman fight and the Battle of the Little Bighorn in the Sioux Wars of the 1860s and 70s, where the urge to pursue the enemy overtakes orders and prudent judgment. This is how it played out. The patrol followed Lobengula's spoor along the river, which critically was fairly wide, but not very deep, and, uh, and then found where Lobengula had crossed the river with a couple of wagons, and they stayed with Lobengula's tracks through uh, Mapani Forest, and a lot of acacia thorn bushes, and about five miles on the far side of the river, they came upon an encampment. And instead of it just being a few fugitives, it was huge. There were thousands of people in this encampment. And uh, the sun was going down. Wilson had his orders that if he couldn't complete the mission by sundown to turn around and come back. He didn't do that. And uh, that was really an impetuous and totally Victorian decision. (laughs) Instead of following his orders, Wilson detailed two men to return to Forbes' main column and tell him that, that... they were on Lobengula's trail and hoped to capture him the next day. And Wilson requested that Forbes send reinforcements and a Maxim gun. And those two riders made it back to Forbes' column that night and delivered the message. Wilson led the patrol in just spurring their horses into the encampment, and a Captain William Napier who would actually survive the patrol, wrote in his diary, the howling, shouting, and scurrying as we dashed through the shirms, which are brush shelters, occupied by the king's guard and their family, boys milking, women and girls grinding their evening meal, must be left to one's imagination. Napier was, he spoke the the, uh, Isi Nubele language, and so he was shouting that, that... they weren't there to kill anybody, that they were looking for the king. The Matabili were completely taken off guard and and thrown into confusion by this sudden appearance of these white men galloping their horses into their encampment. And uh, so the patrol penetrated well into this encampment, and they found a couple of wagons that they thought were Lobengulas, and, and they believed that they had the king. But he wasn't there. And the Matabili started to recover from their surprise and started to converge around the column, and they could see and hear them uh, preparing their rifles and, and, uh, and cocking and loading these single-shot Martini Henry. So they figured that they'd better get out of there. And so they turned around and galloped back out of the encampment just as a huge thunderstorm broke. 
and uh, lightning was was flashing and and uh, and thunder crashing and and the rain was just absolutely sluicing down and the night was as as black as pitch. So um, they knew that they couldn't stay where they were, so they kind of just moved back into the direction that they they came, and um, but they were bogged down because the the ground that they had covered before was now all soggy and marshy because of the rain. So they stopped in a thicket and dismounted their horses. So Wilson consulted with his, his other officers and decided to send yet another message to Forbes um, and uh, detailed Captain Napier and uh, uh, the scout Bain, who... Uh, had ridden up from South Africa with the Burnham party, um, again urging for Forbes to send more troops and a Maxim gun before daylight. Um, and Wilson's message was was very urgent at this point. Um, he told them to tell Forbes that if if Forbes didn't send reinforcements and a Maxim gun, they wouldn't only lose the king, but they'd also be trapped and and wiped out. So actually, there were, were three men, Captain Napier and a trooper and the scout Bain, and uh, they managed to find their way in darkness back to the Shangani River, which was now starting to flood. They made it across and got Wilson's message to Forbes, but uh, they were done in. Uh, Bain uh, reportedly almost fell off of his horse because he had uh, he was just shaking with fever, and Napier was done up as well. So they couldn't return to to Wilson, which uh, turned out to be a fortunate thing for them. Meanwhile, back with Wilson's patrol. Um, Burnham and Wilson went out uh, into the dark to find three troopers that had not uh, had been separated from the main group, and uh, they were able to. Burnham was able actually to to crawl around and find horse tracks, and then they they just uh, called to them with uh, what what Burnham called a cowboy yell, going calling cooey cooey, and uh, they called the the troopers into them. Um, the Matabili obviously heard them, but uh, they uh, refrained from attacking, probably because it was so dark and the the rain was coming down so hard. So Burnham brought the uh, the missing troopers in, and then they just all kind of sat tight, waiting for this stormy night to end and for Forbes to send reinforcements. And it turned out, for reasons that are are still unclear today, that uh, Forbes kind of did the worst possible thing under the circumstance. He didn't send a large party of reinforcements out. He sent 21 men and no Maxim gun. And uh, those those men, led by uh, Burnham's friend Pete Ingram, rode into uh, Wilson's position at dawn the next day, which was 
December 4th, 1893. So Forbes had made the kind of grotesque tactical blunder of sending out a force that was too small and too lightly armed to save Wilson and just provided a whole lot more men to die on the spear points of the Matabili. And the Matabili were gathering a, uh, a pretty heavy force. Um, that probably played into Forbes' decision. He knew that, that uh, the Matabili were out there, and he was afraid of his main column being attacked. Um, so that, that does offer some mitigating uh, uh, reasoning for his decision. But nevertheless, um, he had basically sent out an additional 21 men to die. And Wilson's men understood the situation perfectly when this 21-man reinforcement arrived with no Maxim gun. In fact, uh, Burnham overheard Captain William Judd say, this is the end. So in true Victorian fashion, they had to decide how they wanted to make their end, and they could try to cut their way out through the gathering force of, of Matabili and make it back to the Shangani, or they could make another try to capture the king and uh, either kill him or at least kill as many as they could of the Matabili force that surrounded him, and that's what they ended up deciding that they would do. So they again tried to make a play for the king's wagons, um, and uh, Burnham wrote, With a bravado of the doomed, Wilson shouted for the king to surrender. But Lobengula's wagons were still empty. The king wasn't there. He had skedaddled. And uh, so there was no king to capture or kill. And uh, at this point, the, the Matabili were, were raring for action, and they actually opened fire on the patrol and uh, killed a couple of horses. And uh, Wilson ordered his men to, to uh, cut off their saddlebags to save the ammunition that they carried because they were going to need it. And uh, the riders who had gone down with their horses jumped on, uh, on the backs of other horses, um, other riders in, in tandem. And uh, they made a run for it to an anthill that, and, and in Africa, these anthills were, were gigantic, um, something like 20 feet high, and, and it was wide enough to, to give them some, some cover and concealment. But the Matabili just flanked them and uh, continued to, to fire on them, not terribly effectively. Again, they were not very good with firearms, but uh, there was just a whole lot of, of, of warriors there, and their fire was starting to take an effect. They were uh, hitting mostly the horses and uh, and wounded a couple of the men. So Wilson ordered them to retreat again back into the into the trees where they had had, uh, had camped that night. And uh, that's where the last stand of the Shangani patrol would occur. Wilson and the rest of, of his command knew that they were almost certainly doomed. 
um, he did decide to take one last crack at getting relief from Forbes' column. And he asked the only man that he could really count on to make it through this tightening ring of Matabele warriors and, uh, and get a message to, to Forbes and lead Forbes back to relieve Wilson's column. That was Frederick Russell Burnham. Um, he uh, assigned a trooper named Gooding to accompany him, and uh, Burnham asked if uh, his friend Pete Ingram could ride with him. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in just a minute, but uh, Burnham's haters, I don't even call them critics because they, they just really kind of have a visceral hatred of the man, um, use this as evidence that, uh, that Burnham was trying to run off from the column, to desert the column or um, use the excuse of seeking reinforcements to escape. And it's it's just ludicrous um, because it assumes that it was somehow safer to try to make their way through this Mapani forest and what had become a horde of Matabele warriors, very heavily armed and and with their blood up. Um, and add to that that the the fact that Wilson's column had absolutely no chance at all if Forbes didn't come forward with the Maxim gun. And he tried twice to send men with that message. And, uh, you know, why not try a desperate gambit for the third time? And these were the right men to send. So, um, you know, essentially Burnham and, and Gooding and Ingram were dead men sitting in a saddle except that they weren't, and the reason that they weren't is down to Burnham's skill and some good luck. Um, they, they, Burnham recounts um, having a, a, a choice at one point when confronted with some Matabele warriors of turning to the right onto open ground where his horse might be able to outrun the Matabele who were on foot, or turning left into a thicket, and it was counterintuitive to turn into that thicket, but that's what he did. And it was almost certainly the right call because the horses were quite worn out and probably would have been run down on the open ground and and, uh, and Burnham and his companions killed. So they busted through this thicket and, and eventually they got themselves to the Shingani River, which was in flood because of that heavy rain. And they knew at that point that there was just no hope that uh, Forbes would be able to send relief to Wilson. And in fact, they could hear gunfire and the rattle of the Maxim guns from Forbes' position, so they knew that Forbes was under attack. And they knew that behind them, Wilson and his men were making their last stand. So to go back was certain death, to go forward was to maybe be able to get across the river and another battle and a chance. So the men swam their horses across the river, slipped through the Matabele forces that were attacking Forbes' camp, and reported to Major Forbes. And Burnham said, I think I may say that we are the sole survivors of that party. 
And they were. Uh, the the Shigani patrol was wiped out to the last man. And so, of course, there are no Western witnesses to what happened. But uh, we have a pretty good idea of, of how the end came for Wilson and his command from interviews with the, uh, the Matabili after the war. Much like we have the accounts of, of Lakota and, uh, and Cheyenne warriors from the uh, Fetterman fight and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. One of the Indunas, which is a general of uh, a Matabili regiment, recalled, We surrounded them and started to fight. They got off their horses and fired at us over them. All of the horses were killed, and then the white men, those of them that were left, lay down behind the dead horses and fired at us. After many of the white men were killed, the few that were left, all of whom were wounded, lay on their backs and held their rifles between their feet and fired. After a little, the firing stopped, and we knew the cartridges were finished. We then rushed up and assegaied the remainder, who covered their eyes with their hands. We lost many more than the number of white men, for they were men indeed, and fought us for many hours. Another Matabili witness recalls the last handful of troopers singing, God Save the Queen. Six only left, men or gods, fell a-singing as though their breasts were bursting with a wondrous joy. I knew not meaning of song, but some amongst us knew it for the song of the last things of all, song of triumph, which tells of the glories of the great white mother who rules the impies of the English. Now, as I mentioned, Burnham's escape from that fate has been fodder ever since for uh, people who, who have this visceral dislike for the man. Some of those were contemporaries. Um, Burnham was generally very highly regarded in Rhodesia, but there were some that didn't like him, and, and it seems that that was um, a bit of anti-American bias. They didn't like this brash American who had ingratiated himself with the early Rhodesian establishment. And so ever since the Shangani patrol was wiped out, there have been those who have whispered or shouted that Burnham, Ingram, and Gooding deserted the patrol and that the breakout was a lie. And this kind of innuendo sort of, of dogged Burnham on several of his missions, but it never stuck because the aspersions that were cast on him were always based on hearsay, often two or three times removed, um, which amounted you know, essentially to gossip. And uh, that gossip then has been perpetuated by revisionist historians who because Burnham was such a, a classic outrider of empire, uh, they want to sully his, his reputation. And again, I, you know, if you can criticize his motives and the motives of the settlers of Rhodesia, although I think that that's, uh, you know, sort of looking backwards through the historical telescope, but no matter whether you see Burnham as a um, 
you know, a civilizing uh, apostle, as he put it, or a land pirate, uh, you can't deny that the man was highly skilled and served very well and effectively, and I would argue heroically. And I think that that the insinuation that he was a deserter of the Shangani Patrol is just shameful BS. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't jibe with any of the facts as they are known, and certainly his comrades in arms never gave any credence to that notion. So we, I think we can put that entirely to rest. Escaping from the destruction of the Shangani Patrol wasn't the end of the story for, uh, for Burnham, though, in this campaign. The uh, Forbes was able, because he had the, the Maxim guns and, and strong numbers, was able to hold off the Matabili attack um, and uh, they sort of uh, wended their way back to safety um, in starving conditions. They were eating their horses and, at this point. Um, Forbes, at, at, at this point, had become completely demoralized and was essentially useless. And the real command of, of his column devolved down to a, a Boer irregular um, commandant, Peter Roth, who was very competent and capable, and led with Burnham scouting this miserable trek back down the Shangani River and uh, dodging Matabili ambushes for two weeks uh, before they they made it back to to safety. It was really a a sort of miserable anticlimax to what had been a, a very successful campaign for the British South Africa Company. They'd won the war, um, but uh, the Matabili had gotten some some very stiff blows in at the end of it. Um, they never did catch Lobengula. He died in uh, February of 1894, probably of smallpox. It's not certain where exactly or how. And um, his successors who were completely demoralized by the loss of thousands of uh, casualties sued for peace. And uh, so that cleared the road for Burnham to get back to what he had come to Africa for, which was to make his fortune. Uh, Didn't quite work out that way. So with the end of the the war, the British South Africa Company had assumed control of Matabili land as well as Mashona land, and all of this would become Rhodesia. And the chartered company certainly recognized Burnham's major contributions to the success of this campaign. The company administrator, Leander Starr, Jameson, who was known as as Dr. Jim to the Rhodesian pioneers, gave Burnham preference in selecting mining and land claims, which I think contributed to some people's resentment of him. And uh, as we noted in his in reading his his letter to his uncle, Burnham, like most frontiersmen on campaign, 
had kept an eye out for, for good country and had watched for for good mining sites. And uh, he created a Burnham syndicate to develop mining claims and to peg out mining claims for, for other people for a fee. This is a good point at which to, to make a note that, that you know, we have a, an image of the frontiersman as, as a lone white man in the, in the wilderness, and that was really seldom the way that they operated. That was, would have been an unusual frontiersman. Like the majority, Frederick Russell Burnham was operating a family concern. Um, the long hunters of the Trans-Appalachian West in the middle of the 18th century, their, their hunting expeditions were often family, actually usually family and neighbor expeditions. Boer ivory hunters the same. You could even say the same thing about the Earp brothers in Tombstone, Arizona. It was not the man in the uh, alone in the wilderness trope at all. It was a, a, a family tribe. You needed people that could watch your back. And, uh, and Burnham enjoyed providing the opportunity for his relatives to prosper. And, uh, and Burnham actually called them his, his tribe. And uh, it was part of his, his joy in life to see them all working together to try to make a go of it in a new country. The Bradfords write, Burnham worked in a whirlwind of activity, pegging land for speculators, prospecting, and forming syndicates to sell mining claims to London investors. From legends of ancient diggings and through observation and deduction, he tracked down gold, copper, and coal. He speculated on land and dreamed of becoming a leader in Rhodes' proposed United States of South Africa. From May to August of 1895, Fred led a prospecting expedition north of the Zambezi River to the north of the, the Matabele land and, and Mashona land settlements, an expedition in which Cecil Rhodes himself was pretty keenly interested, not just for the minerals that he might find, but uh, Rhodes had ambitions of uh, painting the map pink, British, the British color, the off-red uh, color of the British Empire with a Cape to Cairo railroad. So he, he saw uh, British Anglo-Saxon settlement uh, from one end of Africa to the other. And uh, so this expedition was an opportunity for Burnham to scout out potential routes for that Cape to Cairo Railroad. And the venture proved as arduous and nearly fatal as the war did. Traveling in the interior of Africa was, was a dangerous business, and it almost did... Fred and, and several others on the expedition in. I didn't find gold. It was The country was not rich in gold, but it was rich in copper. And so this, this expedition raised Burnham's profile still further in Rhodesia. And all of this time, his wife Blanche kept the household in, in uh, Bulawayo going. That's where they had, had moved once Matabeleland was, was conquered. 
and she had help from her sister Grace, who had moved out to uh, to Africa, and uh, they'd sent young Roderick Burnham off to boarding school in Europe under the care of Fred's brother Howard. In May of 1894, Blanche gave birth to a daughter that they named Nada, while Fred was off pegging mining claims, and Nada was the first white child born in Bulawayo, and they named her after the Zulu main character in H. Ryder Haggard's 1892 novel, Nada the Lily. Fred and Blanche decided to take a very well-earned break from frontier living in the fall of 1894 after Grace Blick married Burnham's young scouting buddy, uh, Pete Ingram, who had survived the Shangani patrol with him. And they accompanied the honeymooners on a trip to Europe where they could visit Roderick and get a nice dose of, of civilized living. Um, Blanche was a, a pioneer woman through and through, but she liked her nice things. And Fred insisted that she get some lovely gowns made. And they took in the theater and visited with Haggard, who at this point was was uh, quite famous. And uh, Haggard proclaimed that, Burnham in real life is more interesting than any of my heroes of romance. They... Uh, in, in a move that, that seems a little bit strange to us now, um, they left their 17-month-old daughter, Nada, in Bulawayo with, with family. They were concerned that the trip would, would take too big of a toll on her, and even though travel had, had modernized, um, they were probably right. It was There was no railroad at this point into... Um, what was becoming Rhodesia, and uh, so the journey to the Cape was was long and somewhat dangerous, especially for an infant, and uh, then there was a long sea journey. So um, it's a little startling to think of leaving a 17-month-old child in frontier Africa while you high off to Europe, but it makes a certain sense. It ended up being a very tragic decision, though. Um, in January, while the family was in London, the Rhodesian colony and South Africa in general began moving straight into a storm. There were a number of elements to this storm, uh, some of them geopolitical and some of them cultural and some of them biological. The Matabili had seemed to adapt pretty calmly to their new status as a, as a conquered people, and they willingly paid, apparently willingly, paid a hut tax and adhered to new labor requirements and uh, accepted a large contingent of native police. But it turns out that they were also stockpiling rifles and assegais and brooding upon their resentments and humiliations. Unsurprisingly, they had been the lords of the land until very recently, and now they were a subject people, and that didn't sit well with a warrior people. It never does. 
Another element that uh, was beyond anyone's control was a terrible outbreak of, of rinderpest, which is a uh, respiratory plague that affects livestock, and it just absolutely ravaged uh, a whole corridor of the continent from eastern Africa, um, East Africa, down to the, uh, the Cape, and was just killing thousands and thousands of, of cattle um, in particular. And uh, the mortality rate was was huge, almost uh, um, in, you know in the range of ninety percent. Um, so, in a very rational manner, the white administrators of the Rhodesian colony ordered the slaughter of the cattle, which was the only way to stop the spread of the disease. But the Matabili saw the st- destruction of these animals that, in their culture weren't just food um, they were your your wealth and your status and your and your spiritual status as well so they saw slaughter of, of these cattle as an attack on them and they blamed there was also drought um, which uh, in some areas they were getting half of the amount of, of rain that they would normally get and the Matabili from their perspective, not unreasonably, traced all of these problems to the white men coming into their country. And so they had determined to throw them out. At the same time as all this was was developing, Rhodes was scheming in his desire to paint the the map red. And um, his right-hand man, Dr. Jim... Leander Starr Jameson led a contingent that included um, a chunk of the colony's paramilitary police force out of Rhodesia into South Africa in an attempted coup against the Boer Republic in the Transvaal on behalf of, of the English-speaking population that had moved in there for, for mining um, that were known as, as Uitlanders. Um, the raid, which we won't go into the details of, but but probably we'll do uh, uh, at a later date, um, was known as the Jameson Raid, and it was a total failure. Um, the Boers were alert to it. There was no uprising in Johannesburg, which uh, which Rhodes and his co-conspirators, or co-conspirators were counting on. And the, the Boers surrounded Jameson's command and shot him up and forced them to surrender and... Toss them into into jail before uh, turning them over to British colonial authorities. All of these things left the Rhodesian colony vulnerable. Um, some have posited that the Jameson raid actually triggered the rebellion, but that that's probably not uh, quite the case. The uh, the raid occurred. Um, at the very end of December and, and in January of 1895, or of 1896, rather. And uh, the rebellion didn't start until March of 1896. And uh, there's also debate amongst historians as to how coordinated the, the rebellion of 1896 was. 
Um, it's likely that uh, that the Montebello were, of course, aware that uh, a large number of white paramilitary troops were out of the country and uh, and unavailable to uh, to defend it. Um, that was probably an opportunity for them uh, to to launch a rebellion that that was um, kind of simmering in the works. If the rebellion was supposed to be coordinated, it didn't work out that way. Um, Random killings began in March and then started to spread. And uh, the Matabili actually had adapted very well to the realities of, of combat after their defeat in the 1893 war. They weren't going to repeat the mistakes that they had made in that conflict. They weren't going to make big frontal assaults on, on fortified positions. They conducted guerrilla attacks, and they, they killed many isolated prospectors and settlers um, in, and in very, very brutal fashion, um, which absolutely enraged the, the settlers. Um, women and children were killed as well as men. It was mostly mostly men that were killed, but there were women and children that were, were killed and, and often mutilated severely, and that inculcated a great deal of rage in, in the white settlers that never really died down. Um, they gradually tightened a cordon around the main Matabililand city of Bulawayo, and they were also at this point, thanks to the training of native police, some of which stayed loyal to the settlers and some of which went over to the rebels. But the Matabili were much better with firearms than, than they had been. They weren't, weren't uh, suddenly great shots, but they were, were better shots and understood firearms and how to um, deploy them tactically much better than they had in 1893. And... Uh, for strange reasons that, that seem unfathomable to uh, looking back on it, many of the Rhodesian settlers and prospectors didn't carry any firearms at all. Um, they were completely complacent in a recently conquered land. It really, it really makes no sense, but that left them almost helpless against these initial attacks, um, sometimes by, by Matabili who, who worked for them. Um, and uh, so Rhodesia was in a world of hurt. The Burnhams and Ingrams had, had already sailed from Europe when, uh, when the rebellion broke, and they got to Cape Town, and, and Fred and Pete headed north in March. Just as soon as they could, they... they got a stagecoach, which was not an easy task because the Rinderpest had so devastated the livestock all through South Africa. But they, they found a stagecoach, tossed off mailbags, loaded up ammunition, and headed north to Bulawayo, where they both uh, immediately began uh, running scouting patrols against these guerrilla bands of Matabili who were uh, out in the countryside and uh, and 
laying a, a kind of loose siege to, to Bulawayo. Blanche and Grace followed up in, in May, by which time uh, Bulawayo was, was definitely under siege. And uh, the conditions and privations of that siege would uh, make Neda, who was now two years old, very ill. And uh, she just went downhill and the lily withered and, and died. And that made the war very tragic and very personal for Fred Burnham. In his memoir, he wrote, Constantly before my enraged vision rose the picture of my wife vainly holding to her breast our dying Nada. H. Ryder Haggard, who had met and befriended Burnham in London in 1895, was deeply touched by the tragic death of this two-year-old child and dedicated his book, The Wizard, which would come out in 1896, to her memory. To the memory of the child, Nada Burnham, who bound all to her, and while her father cut his way through the hordes of the Ngobo Regiment, perished of the hardships of war at Bulawayo on 19 May 1896. I dedicate these tales, and more particularly the last, that of a faith which triumphed over savagery and death. He would end up dedicating two more novels to Nada as well, Alyssa, The Doom of Zimbabwe in 1899, and Black Heart and White Heart, a Zulu idol in 1900. Any modern-day special operations soldier would recognize the kind of work that Frederick Russell Burnham was doing during the Matabili Rebellion. He uh, led reconnaissance patrols, um, which sometimes ran into, into firefights with the uh, Matabili insurgents. And uh, he also kind of developed a specialty in, uh, in dirty tricks. The Matabili insurgents had to scavenge for ammunition for their Martini Henry rifles, so Burnham and uh, his fellow scouts took a stock of, of ammunition and pried out the, the bullets and uh, filled the casings with blasting gelatin, which was used in, in mining, then reseeded the bullets and scattered them out where, uh, where natives would find them. And uh, so when they fired the gun, their, their gun and one of these tampered with cartridges uh, went off, it would, it would blow up the gun in their hands, um, which must have been a, a terrible surprise. Now, obviously, that's not a, a big battlefield impact, but uh, it's a, a kind of, a, of psychological operations that, uh, that would have some effect on... Uh, on warriors who were already not all that comfortable with firearms. But his most significant special op operation was what would be called today a targeted killing. Many of the insurgencies of the colonial era 
involved a a large spiritual component. Um, often, and and this goes back centuries, really. Um, oftentimes, uh, these native rebellions, as they were often termed by by the whites, um, were fueled, if not inspired by, uh, religious movements that uh, that demanded a return to. Uh, the world pre-contact um, demanded that that the native peoples give up the uh, the trade goods that they had become dependent upon, um, everything but firearms, which were obviously needed to uh, to affect the the throwing off of the the white yoke uh, in the Matabili rebellion. Um, the white Rhodesians were, were convinced that a, a, either a deity or an oracle uh, known as the Umlimo was fomenting and guiding the rebellion through mystical pronouncements and um, through assurances, again, which are seen commonly in many colonial wars, that, uh, that the warriors of the insurgency would be protected from the white man's bullets that, uh, by magic and that these bullets would be turned to water. Um, think of the, uh, the ghost dance in, uh, at the same time frame in 1890 in the, uh, the United States where, uh, the ghost shirt was supposed to protect Lakota warriors from the white man's bullets. This is a very common, um, element of, of colonial era insurgencies, it was also very common that that the white authorities didn't really understand the nature of these spiritual movements at all and misinterpreted them and misunderstood them, and that's probably the case in uh, in with uh, the Umlimo. Um, the uh, they assumed that that. The Umlimo was was a ringleader, a singular ringleader of the rebellion, and that's probably not the case. Um, the uh, they probably were confusing the name of the Malalaka harvest god Umlimo with the priests who communicated with the god. At any rate, the perception that religious or religion was playing a major role in the insurgency was probably accurate. Uh, they didn't understand the, the details of it or the nature of it, but it probably was true that um, the Umlimo cult, as it were, was um, a sustaining factor for the insurgents. So a young native commissioner named Bonner Armstrong had uh, developed a, a Zulu informant who um, identified the, the location of the shrine of the Umlimo, um, who was actually a priest of the Umlimo named Jobani. Um, and this, this shrine was located in the Matopos Hills, which are um, granite outcroppings, very, very rugged um, um, terrain with uh, many caves. And it was assumed that, that this was the, the Umlimo who was, was the inspiration for the insurgency. 
and he proposed an operation to capture or kill the Umlimo. And his commander, General Carrington, um, at this point in the insurgency, there were British troops involved in the, in the fighting, approved the mission on the condition that Frederick Russell Burnham was attached to the mission to get Armstrong into this hostile country and back out again. And it was a, a, a very, very high-risk uh, operation, and Blanche recognized at the time that she might be saying goodbye to her husband for the last time. But uh, Burnham was was happy to to follow orders. Um, he was still carrying that that fire of rage over his daughter's death, which he blamed on the the Matabili because of the conditions of the siege, and. Uh, so Carrington's orders were, find the Umlimo, capture him if you can, kill him if you must, do not let him escape. And that was exactly the kind of mission that Burnham wanted. The pair located the Umlimo's cave, which was um, situated in, in the hills up above a, an inhabited village. And it was probably pretty clear to Armstrong and Burnham that even if they wanted to, that they really didn't have a chance to capture the priest um, and get him out of, of the area. Um, there were too many other uh, Matabili around and could be, and he would be, could be readily rescued. They approached the cage in stages, and Burnham brought up their horses which they needed, obviously, for their getaway, concealing him in the brush and then bringing Armstrong up and kind of hopscotching um, towards the cave. And then they pulled clumps of, of grass and, and stuck it in their hat bands and, and carried it in front of them to camouflage their passage. And then uh, they entered the, the cave and positioned themselves so that uh, that when... Joe Bonney, the Umlimo, uh, came into the cave. He would to to practice whatever magic rituals he practiced. Uh, that he would be backlit. Uh, they had a conversation about who would take the shot. Um, they had given up on the the capture mission, and it was obviously a, a, a kill mission at this point. Um, so they they had a discussion about who who would take the shot. Um, Burnham offered it to Armstrong because it was his intelligence work that had got them there. Um, but uh, Armstrong had never pulled a trigger on a man before, and so he deferred to Burnham, who had. And uh, so as the Umnimo, as they thought him, entered the cave, Burnham shot him center mass under the heart. And then they leaped over his corpse and made a dash for their horses and uh, dashed down the hill and and uh, set fire to the village to create a diversion. And then they mounted up and, and galloped away. Um, they were easily distanced themselves from the, the foot pursuit, but it should be borne in mind that this was, was very rough ground and... and had one of their horses stepped in a hole or broken a leg or just gone down, um, they would have been uh, they would have been captured and speared. So uh, their their luck held and uh, and they got away. 
but uh, their uh, their reputations didn't exactly. Uh, once again, uh, for reasons that that I think amount to resentment of uh, of Burnham's elevated reputation and position in the colony, um, certain elements of the uh, of the BSA company uh, decided to take a, a shot at Burnham. Um, should be borne in mind that, that uh, Dr. Jim was off the board because of the Jameson raid, and uh, had he been present as the administrator, it's doubtful that, uh, that some of the, of the criticism of Burnham would have, have gone very far. But there was a court of inquiry, which uh, the records for which have long been, been, uh, been lost, one company official just claimed that the whole mission was a hoax. Um, that doesn't seem to be um, a tenable position. Um, this official's position was based on the the fact that the Umlimo activity continued after the killing, um, but that doesn't mean that that uh, that the mission was a hoax. What it means is that the the white authorities, the military authorities, and the civil uh, civil authorities just didn't understand the nature of of the religious movement. There wasn't a single umlimo to eliminate. Um, later historians have thrown out the possibility that Burnham and Armstrong killed an innocent man, and that that Jobani was really a friendly. Um, could be. Uh, it would not be the first or the last time that the bad intel led to a mistaken killing. Um, but again, this is a, a product of revisionist history that is is hostile to the entire Rhodesian project and uh, and to Burnham as an, an agent of that project in particular. And there's, they're really not presenting any evidence for it. It's just it, it's really pretty speculative, and uh, with you know maybe a little bit of circumstantial evidence. For his part, Burnham was convinced that he and Armstrong had eliminated a high value target and dealt a mortal blow to the rebellion. That's not true either. Um, he may have been a high value target, Giovanni, but. Um, his killing did not end the rebellion. It can be said that the rebellion lost steam, whether that's attributable to the the death of, of this priest of the Umlimo or not, um, is debatable and really unknowable. But the rebellion did lose steam shortly thereafter, and Cecil Rhodes uh, would just walk into a uh, one of the main insurgent encampments and make a deal with them to uh, lay down their arms. They were sick of the war. It was, it was uh, creating great hardship for the Matabili, um, even greater really than it was for, for the white settlers at this point. They were ready to, to give it up, and Rhodes, uh, ever the deal maker, was willing to make a deal, um, not least in order to stop the financial bleeding that the war was causing to the British South Africa Company. Um, 
There was an uprising and a rebellion in Mashona land that occurred uh, shortly. It overlapped with the the Matabili rebellion uh, and continued uh, for some period of time afterwards. That's outside the scope of of this story. But uh, you know, to to kind of tie a knot in it, uh, it's it's impossible to say that, as some have that that Burnham's uh, act ended the war, but it does seem reasonable to believe that it did contribute to the end of the Matabili Rebellion of 1896. There had been a time, not too many years past, when Fred had written in letters that he would never leave Africa except to visit Europe, that he would never return to live in the United States, um, and that he was, he was making Southern Africa his new home. That changed after the Matabele Rebellion of 1896 and the death of, of Neda. Um, understandably, Rhodesia had become nothing but a place of sorrow to Blanche, and uh, it had kind of lost its shine for Fred as well. And uh, they would leave there, and they would not return, although Burnham would return to Africa. Um, As was his wont, he uh, soon discovered another treasure to be sought when uh, gold was discovered in the Klondike, and uh, he would be amongst those who uh, stampeded north to Alaska to search for the the gold of the the Klondike strike. But that wouldn't last long either, um, because war and the call of duty would summon Frederick Russell Burnham back to Africa in 1899. But we'll tell that story in the next episode. I want to take just a moment to, to reflect on, on the nature of the Matabele Wars and the conflict that, uh, that Frederick Russell Burnham was involved in. Venturing into this arena is walking into a minefield in the current cultural climate because the pioneering and, of, of Mashona land and, and the conquest of Matabele land and, and the creation of the the white ruled state of Rhodesia is a pretty classic example of what's known nowadays as settler colonialism, and settler colonialism is considered a black mark on Euro American civilization, and uh, to be sure. There was a, a, a great deal of white supremacy involved in, you know, white supremacist thinking and outlook and, and actions involved in the creation of Rhodesia. Um, and many ways of, of looking at the world and many actions that are now 
that we're now very uncomfortable with. Uh, but before we just turn the old triumphalist trope of, of civilization overcoming barbarism on its head and replace it with an equally simplistic uh, version of history where, where evil white racists uh, steal land from innocent indigenous people, it would behoove us to, to recognize that, that the Amadabili the Matabili, as they were known then, were themselves an imperial people. They were a renegade offshoot of the Zulu nation, which was also a very aggressive military power. Um, They had rampaged across South Africa and displaced and killed countless other native peoples from the 1830s on, when they moved north of the Limpopo River and conquered what became Matabili land, they subjugated the, uh, the Mashona people uh, very severely and, uh, and treated them as a, a form of cattle, except that they were really only fit for, for slavery or to wet their spears. So the Matabele were not indigenous to the land that the Rhodesian pioneers uh, settled and then conquered, nor were they um, peaceful, innocent people. They were, they, they were a rough bunch. And the, the takeaway from that is that, that frontiers and borderlands are, are hard places that attract hard people um, and and often are the theater of, of very savage warfare, which the Matabili War of 1893 was and, and the 1896 Rebellion even, even more so. It's hard to look at these things dispassionately, um, and maybe we shouldn't look at them dispassionately, even though we're, we're well over a century beyond the events. But... Uh, I think that we we need to look at them, if not objectively, at least with with some level of of empathy for uh, both sides and putting ourselves in the shoes of of Lobangula's people and seeing things through their eyes. And uh, in the case of of this profile of Frederick Russell Burnham, seeing things as as the uh, the men and women who pioneered and prospected in Rhodesia saw them. Nobody was evil here um, in some kind of cosmological sense. There were cultural imperatives at play um, that were very strong in both cases. You had uh, two really ascendant powers uh, meeting on the same piece of land, and the inevitable thing happened. They, They fought over it. And one side was clearly technologically superior and was able to, through that technological superiority, uh, assert their dominance. And that lasted for the better part of of a century, but not all the way through the 20th century. So, um, you know, I, I look at all of frontier history uh, not as as an ideological um, morality play, 
but as a, an extraordinary story of human endeavor and conflict. And in that sense, the story of, of the early years of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, are uh, you know form one of the most compelling frontier tales. And uh, I'm glad that you uh, stopped by this campfire to share that tale. If you're interested in delving into this story further, um, as I mentioned last last week, uh, Burnham's own memoirs, Scouting on Two Continents, is a, is a great place to start. Um, the biography... Uh, a Splendid Savage by Steve Kemper is is very well done. I'm going to recommend a new book this week, which um, is an extraordinary collection of Burnham family letters. Uh, Fred Fred's letters to his mother and to his uncle and to other relatives. Blanche's letters to her family um, and and letters to each other. Um, the book is titled An American Family on the African Frontier, and it is uh, the, the work of uh, uh, Mary and Richard Bradford, whose introduction is, uh, provides quite a, an excellent overview of the situation in, uh, in Southern Africa in the 1890s that I drew from that significantly for, for this particular podcast. It can't be overstated how extraordinary it is to have the volume of letters and and very well written letters that the Burnham family produced. Um, they were well educated people and quite literate, and uh, the the letters are very vivid. Um, some of their attitudes are. Um, pretty shocking to a modern audience. They definitely had at best a paternalistic view of natives in general and the, the black natives of, of, uh, what would become Rhodesia in particular. Um, again, you know, I think that, that we can look at that, uh, with some level of understanding, we don't have to accept it or or advocate for those kinds of white supremacist views um, to recognize that they were the common views of that culture at that time. And the letters are just an absolute treasure trove uh, for anyone who's interested in in frontier history. I will also recommend uh, for a study of the two Matabili Wars, uh, the book Matabili by Chris Ash. Um, Ash is, is uh, pretty tendentious. He's a, a very pro-British empire in all of his, his writings, and he can get sidetracked into uh, rants about political correctness and... and uh, and that sort of thing, um, which I think actually detract from the, the, the work, but, um, you know, taking that with, uh, an appropriate, uh, grain of salt, the, uh, the research that he's done and the conclusions that he draws are, are quite compelling. Um, and, and he really does an, an excellent job 
of laying out uh, the uh, the causes of both the 1893 war and the 1896 rebellion, and uh, and again, you know, it's rather tendentious, but but he does good work in debunking some of the the somewhat soft-headed myth uh, mythology of the the war that that again would treat the Matabili as as um, somewhat innocent victims of white imperialism. Um, so excellent book, uh, Matabili, The War of 1893 and the 1896 Rebellions by Chris Ash. It's very uh, expensive now in paperback, um, but uh, it's readily available via Kindle um, for a reasonable price and, uh, and well worth delving into um, just from a military history standpoint. I want to thank our patrons on uh, from our, our Patreon page who keep the campfire burning. Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godsiff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfager. Uh, Anyone who wants to uh, support the Frontier Partisans website and podcast through Patreon, um, there's a link in the show notes, and I will also uh, list the books that I I just uh, recommended in those show notes as well. So uh, this has been a long one, and I appreciate you uh, you hanging in there with me. Uh, Next episode, we'll... uh, will take us uh, to the Yukon and then back to Africa and then uh, over to Mexico and end up full circle back in Southern California. So look forward to, uh, to walking those trails with Frederick Russell Burnham and we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>